Hello, and welcome to another edition of Inside Umami Medicine. I'm Omi Ford, the Dean and Chief Academic Officer of the University of Miami Middle School of Medicine, New Health. Today I'm joined by Dr. Frank Pinedo, Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center's Associate Director for Cancer Survivorship and Translational Behavioral Sciences. He was recently announced as the Sylvester Dolphins Challenge Cancer Living Proof Endowed Chair in Cancer Survivorship. That is a mouthful because he is such a big deal. So, Dr. Pinedo, so glad to have you here. This is going to be a fun conversation. Um, you've held many positions in our organization, dating back to the times as an undergraduate. Yep. So tell us a little bit about your course, because you were also a postdoc here, faculty member, and now a leader in our cancer program. Tell us about your journey to all the things you've been able to accomplish and where you stand today as an endowed professor in our university. Sure. Thank you, Dean Ford. It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for this opportunity. So as you said, I started my undergraduate career here at DU many years ago. And uh, when it came time for grad school, I said, well, this is my opportunity mm -hmm. to leave Miami, which is my home. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was so impressed with the programs here in clinical health psychology, which is my PhD in, uh, I decided to stay. Mm -hmm. Then it came time for a postdoc. I said, now I can go. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did do one year at the University of Pittsburgh for my clinical residency, but I got drawn back into a postdoctoral fellowship mm -hmm. funded mm -hmm. by the NIH mm -hmm. here. And... Uh, uh, after that, a job opportunity opened up in collaboration with the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, mm -hmm. and I took on that opportunity and stayed at that time here for 12 years. Okay. Okay. But then you came back in uh, 2018. That's you were recruited. Tell us sure. about that piece. And, where, and how, did we, how did we get you back? Uh, so, so I was recruited uh, to Northwestern University, okay. uh, where um, it was one of those opportunities that you couldn't res resist, you couldn't turn down. Mm -hmm. uh, I was younger back then, too, so I figured now or never, let me take this mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And I loved Northwestern. I had a great time up there. But... Uh, I remember in the middle of uh, sitting in my family room, I got a call from Aaron Kovitz uh, telling me, hey, Frank, we have an opportunity for you down here that I think would be of appeal to you. Mm -hmm. And I said, sure, you know, I, I, I love being up here, but Miami's my home. I love the U, so tell me about it. And just long story short, I got a write-up of what Dr. Neimer had put together for the inside designation. I was just so impressed with all the growth and all the development that had taken place in the short time mm -hmm. that I was up in Chicago, which was six years, mm -hmm. that I said, definitely, I'll explore it. And I came for an interview, and then the rest is history. I'm here. Wonderful. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about the uh, cancer survivorship and uh, transitional behavioral sciences uh, sure. program. Mm -hmm. Sure. So there's been a lot of emphasis over the past several decades in cancer survivorship. Mm -hmm. We have seen an unprecedented... And why is that? Well, survival. So we have seen since 1991, mm -hmm. survival rates have increased by 30%. Wow. I mean, that's a huge wow. increase. And of okay. course, it's a combination of early detection, better treatments, mm -hmm. uh, reductions in smoking, which, as you mm -hmm. understand, has a big impact on cancer. So the NCI, the NIH, professional organizations have been very focused on now that people are living longer after a diagnosis of cancer, sure. how do we maintain good quality okay. of life, okay. improve their outcomes. Because they'll have a lot of challenges, I imagine. They do. Mm -hmm. So so the survival benefit, unfortunately, does get offset by 
uh, long-term effects of treatments like okay. radiation, immunotherapy, chemotherapy that mm. persist 10 to 15 years after treatment. So mm. these are very chronic mm. challenges for our patients. Mm -hmm. So the NCI developed an office on cancer survivorship, uh, a lot of specific uh, scientific programs and funding mechanisms are mm -hmm. specifically geared towards helping the survivors. Sure. So I imagine that not only do they have other challenges, they could even have recurrent cancer if they're yeah. living long. So, yeah. so the quality of life becomes a real issue in how to maintain good health. As exactly. So okay. it's a combination of challenges, starting mm -hmm. with the long-term side effects that they get, including sure. fatigue, cognitive uh, challenges, right, right. secondary cancer. So right. cancer right. patients and survivors are more likely to develop a second cancer or have a recurrence of the initial cancer, obviously. And then things we don't think about, like financial toxicity. Wow. That is a what big, is that? So, so that is a concept that's been around for maybe about 10 years or so, and now we're paying closer attention mm -hmm. to it. But uh, cancer care and treatment is one of the leading factors leading to bankruptcy mm -hmm. in the United States for many wow. families. Wow. So the issue of financial toxicity mm -hmm. revolves around the financial challenges sure. that patients and their families have when they have to not only get treated and they may not have all the resources and insurance mm -hmm. to cover it, but also how it affects roles at work, inability to return to work, or maybe having to step back a bit. Wow. Uh, a lot of factors that clearly affect the quality of life after cancer. So it's not just enough uh, that we are able to treat cancer now and have long-term survivors, but they also have serious challenges that continue to impact their lives. Uh, absolutely. And, and, absolutely. And I always say we, you know, diagnosis and treatment is so important and yeah. we don't Right. undermine that in any way, mm -hmm. but we have to also focus on the journey that takes place after that. Well, I'm so glad uh, you and the team are focused on that. So, so tell me, you were recently awarded a grant, a $9.8 million grant from the NCI uh, to, survive, to study uh, the Hispanic Latino cancer survivorship, uh, uh, to study, I guess, Hispanic Latino cancer survivorship. Yep. Yep. Tell me about that grant. Tell me about the genesis, um, you know, of, of the grant. How you, you know, decided to attack that particular problem, and why the NCI would give you ten million dollars to study that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we're very proud that uh, Sylvester and and the Miller School of Medicine is the first institution to actually conduct a cohort study mm -hmm. on Latino cancer survivors. Mm -hmm. And to your point of why so much money for a specific population, mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. It, it, the the cancer experience in Hispanics is quite complex. So if you look at the statistics, Hispanics are about 30% less likely to develop the most common cancers like hmm. prostate cancer, breast cancer, mm -hmm. and colorectal cancer. But they're a greater risk for other cancers mm. like cervical, mm -hmm. stomach, and liver cancer. Hmm. And particularly... Why is that? Well, we think it's, again, a combination of factors, primarily mm -hmm. limited access to healthcare. Mm. So Hispanics are three times less likely to have insurance relative to other mm -hmm. uh, racial mm -hmm. ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. So that's a main factor. There's also some cultural factors mm -hmm. at play, including stigmatization mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. cancer, mm -hmm. where it's still viewed. Uh, it's changing, but there's still this negative stigma attached to it as yeah, yeah. thinking, oh, I did something wrong, or I'm being punished for, for something. So when you take the lack of insurance, lack of access to care, and some cultural hesitancy that mm -hmm. 
prevents them from talking about mm -hmm. screening or risk factors. You put it together and you see these uh, cancers. Mm -hmm. uh, and Hispanics also specific to liver cancer, cervical cancer. These are viral cancers that mm -hmm. can be prevented mm -hmm. and Hispanics tend to have higher rates of HPV, hepatitis hmm. C associated with those cancers. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. So, so this cancer disparity um, is related to access, you know, late right. diagnosis, access, and so forth, and, and, and some cultural issues. So, so how do we begin to address them? How do we begin to attack these disparities to achieve better outcomes? So that's what the study is about. Ah. Uh, so we're, we're, yeah, so we're trying to have a better understanding of what's contributing at least in the survivorship phase. We're not as mm -hmm. focused on the prevention because 9.8 mm -hmm. million mm -hmm. sounds like a lot, but there's only so much you can do. Mm -hmm. So we're very mm -hmm. focused on the adjustment to the cancer diagnosis because it's not only that they have more prevalence of those rare cancers I mentioned, but also if you look at after treatment, their quality of life under symptom burden seems to be greater than for other groups. So we're trying to understand that as well. So in this cohort, we're recruiting 3,000 Hispanics across Miami mm -hmm. and San Antonio, and we're assessing a variety of factors, contextual factors like mm -hmm. income and access to care, mm -hmm. stress factors like general stress or even acculturation and Hispanic-specific mm -hmm. stress, behavioral factors like diet, exercise, and psychosocial factors like coping, social support, knowledge and attitudes. And very exciting to us, we're also looking at genetic admixture to look at the variability in the Hispanic community hmm. in terms of genetic background. And we're looking at signaling of inflammatory pathways that okay. are related to stress that can contribute to exacerbating symptoms. So, so if I understand correctly, so this kind of study, this kind of rigorous analysis has not been done before it has not in the, the hispanic uh, latino population well, wh why is that well, why why did we ignore I, I, this, I, I, such a growing uh, <laughs> population the largest minority yeah yeah so so almost 19 percent of the u.s population right. 62 million mm -hmm. i think the the message traditionally has been well you know when you look at prostate colorectal and breast hispanics have less okay. incidence and prevalence so let's focus in other groups rightfully so because it's not like non-Hispanic whites and African-Americans are out of the woods in any way. They mm -hmm. have very mm -hmm. severe outcomes as well. Mm -hmm. But I think now there's been more interest in the Hispanic community because of the growth that we're seeing yeah. in that community. Yeah. So, so clearly this is going to be crucial for developing better outcomes. Yeah, and, and absolutely. that's what you're hoping this is going to lead to. Absolutely, yeah. and framing messages for management mm -hmm. and prevention of mm -hmm. uh, cancer. And, and, and so what do you anticipate are going to be the critical factors if you are going to guess, and I know scientists, we 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 have we form a hypothesis and then we test it. So, what what, what is the driving hypothesis behind this? Yeah, what you think is going to impact outcome? Yeah, so we're very focused on modifiable factors. Okay, it's hard to modify access to care, income, uh, migration status, and things mm -hmm. uh, factors like that. But what can we change? So, as behavioral scientists, we can change attitudes, knowledge. Mm -hmm coping behaviors, communication with a healthcare provider. So there's a lot of factors in the model that we're testing that we have developed interventions that have been tested in other contexts that we know help promote better outcomes. So that's our big hypothesis. What are the modifiable factors that matter? And then can we frame an intervention based on those factors mm -hmm. that provides from public health messages to very targeted 
specific cancer interventions to help these patients. You mentioned earlier that uh, you're recruiting 3,000 patients for this study. Are they all from South Florida? Are you collaborating with some other institutions? Yes. And uh, then tell me which ones and why. Yeah, so it's a multi-site study. We're okay. the lead institution, but the other institutions, University of Texas, mm-hmm. Health Science Center in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because, as you know, Dean Ford, the Hispanic community is very diverse. Sure. And the Hispanic community in Miami is very different from the rest of the Hispanic communities in the U.S. That's right. So we have representation from 15 distinct countries here wow. in Miami uh, and wow. in a place like Texas. So, almost, so and, and there's a fall mostly Central Latin America, you know, yeah. Central, oh, okay, got yeah. it. Yeah, so, so, so in Miami, obviously, we're going to be focused on Caribbean, Hispanic, Central, right. and, and South American. And in San Antonio, they'll almost be exclusively Mexican-Americans, Mexican, right. which are 62% of the U.S. Hispanic population. So it makes sense. Good, good, good. But that's uh, that's fascinating. So this heterogeneity, yeah, um, is going to be quite good. And you said you're going to do some genetic linkages and yes. so forth. So, so with such a diverse Latino population, you'll be able to really pinpoint some of the variables that may be applicable for Central American Latino yep. Latinx people or I mean this this is fascinating. Huh? Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, to yeah. Us. yeah that, that that's unique. Um so how are we going to use this data to influence policy mm-hmm. and outcomes? You know, what, what what do we do when we find out all this good stuff. Yeah, that's a great question. So part of the challenge we've had, because this hasn't been done before, mm-hmm. we haven't been able to go and impact policy with data. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. data is going to really create the pathway yeah. or the framework so that we can start promoting those messages to public health agencies, the yeah. CDC, the yeah. government, obviously. So that's what we're hoping. Yeah, so clearly very impactful. So how how far along are you now in terms of recruiting? So we're a year into the study. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. As you know, recruitment is always our, our, our biggest challenge and, uh, yeah. you know, the pandemic and other issues mm-hmm. uh, get in the way, but we're doing relatively well. We've, uh, we've recruited over 180 participants wow. up to now. Wow. Uh, we have six years to recruit 3,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the startup period of the project was mm-hmm. working out the logistics, the procedures. So now we're in the field and uh, we hope to meet our mark. Fantastic. So, so as a Cuban American, I'm sure this is particularly um, important to you. And, and 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 so, tell me about the significance of carrying such a, of leading such a study um, in your role in helping to influence or improve the outcomes for people of from your native country and, and, yeah. and yeah, I'm, I'm very honored uh, to have the opportunity to do that. Uh, for me, for my, my family, it's been hit by cancer, as many of us mm-hmm. have. So it's personal in many ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a little story about the cultural piece. I remember watching with my family some Spanish telenovelas. And this is many years ago, but the villain died because she was a bad person and she died of cancer because uh, God punished her. Uh, and that sort of planted a little seed in me and saying, you know, what about the good person that gets cancer? And it just comes all the way around into how culture sometimes mm-hmm. uh, sends these messages that can be counterproductive to the health of our community. So I'm hoping Absolutely. that we can tease 
some of that out and come out with very clear messaging that's culturally appropriate for Hispanics. That's interesting. That's the stigma you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. So, so we, we talk about the disparity, but the stigma. Yeah. You get cancer. This is punishment from God. This exactly. is part of the whole thing. And, and so you don't really want to get that diagnosis, that label, because it casts a bad spell on you and your family, potentially. Yep, exactly. Well, this is going to be quite enlightening, and it's going to be fantastic when you can present real data saying, no, this is not God punishing you. This thank is you. Yeah. Thank you. So thank you for that work that you're doing. Let us let me shift um, slightly, and um, let's talk about the wellness check mm -hmm. that you have developed uh, um, can you tell us about this pioneering tool to monitor the health of cancer survivors? Sure. Mm -hmm. So following models of value-based care, which is, you know, they promote engagement of patients, optimizing mm -hmm. technology and optimizing clinical workflows. We embarked in meeting some of the mandates that are set by professional organizations to accredit cancer centers, which require mm -hmm. that our patients are monitored on a regular basis for psychosocial distress, symptom burden, practical needs. Mm -hmm. So um, the NIH has put quite a bit of an investment behind developing tools that are mm -hmm. computer-based uh, mm -hmm. and they use computerized mm -hmm. adaptive tests. So the mm -hmm. tests are relatively brief. Uh, mm -hmm. They get calibrated based on the response pattern mm -hmm. and they tap into very specific domains that we know are relevant for cancer patients. Mm -hmm. So this My Wellness Check tool that we develop here uses the tools developed by the NIH mm -hmm. Promise, which mm -hmm. is a patient-reported outcomes measurement information system to capture depression and anxiety, to mm -hmm. cover distress. Mm -hmm. They also capture pain, fatigue, and physical mm -hmm. functioning, which, and these five are kind of like the big five concerns or challenges that our cancer patients have. And we also assess practical needs, like need for transportation, childcare, financial counseling. Mm -hmm. And we've embedded that within the EHR and the patient portal. Okay. So we can track that remotely right before the patient comes in for a visit. So, so how does that work? So my mobile phone, you can, I can just fill in all this information. Exactly. And, and how long does that take? And so, so it's through the patient portal. So if you have okay. a, a MyChart, UChart account, right. you will get prompted if you have an appointment coming in for an ambulatory oncology visit, yeah. and it reminds you to complete my wellness check. Okay. It takes, depending on literacy, mm -hmm. uh, speed, mm -hmm. and, and technology uh, knowledge, maybe between 12 and 20 minutes, depending okay. on the patient. Okay. And it's in Spanish also? It's Spanish and English. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, we're, and we're thinking of a Creole solution for that because the okay. instruments are not validated in Creole, but we want to make sure, sure. we sure. reach that mm -hmm. community. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the major benefits is that because it lives in the electronic health record, mm -hmm. if a patient has clinically elevated depression, for example, mm -hmm. a real-time best practice alert goes to the social work team. Mm -hmm. So the mm -hmm. social work team knows to intercept that patient mm -hmm. when they're coming in. Similarly, if they have elevated fatigue, the best mm -hmm. practice alert goes to the medical team Got it. so that they can address it. So you can fill out this questionnaire and then you can diagnose depression. We, it's more of a screener. Yeah, okay. it's a screener. Okay. And, uh -huh. and it's a very well-validated screen. So sure. if somebody sure. has what we set a cutoff, a clinical cutoff at moderate or severe, okay. chances are okay. probably that that person Depending has on the symptoms that they report exactly. on that wellness check, then you can say, ha, high risk for depression, you go see the social worker, the social yeah. worker, and then they'll do a more extensive Exactly. Screen. And how is that important for better outcomes? 
Well, so we know that depression and anxiety interfere with adherence to mm -hmm. treatment, mm -hmm. uh, being able to engage in quality of life activities. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. eventually that starts collectively impacting mm -hmm. not only the emotional well-being of the patient, mm -hmm. but also their ability to engage with their care. So, so, so how, of all the measures that you are monitoring, um, which one so far looking most promising? Well, first, remind us everything you're looking at and, and what looks most promising or what are you able, you know, which ones have led you to actionable items thus far? Sure. So, so we do mental health, depression, anxiety, the physical symptoms. Okay. Then we do practical needs like mm -hmm. transportation, childcare, mm -hmm. but we also assess nutrition. And amazingly enough, the biggest concern we get from our patients are nutritional concerns. Really? There's a lot of confusion out there. So think about, not even for a cancer patient, just in general, mm -hmm. you know, what to eat, what not to eat, right, which diet, right, right. which herbal supplement is what you want to be taking. Mm -hmm. So our cancer patients come in with a lot of questions and a lot of needs mm -hmm. about nutrition. But I would say for us, the addressing the depression and anxiety along with the pain, fatigue, and physical functioning mm -hmm. are the more critical ones that we want to address because traditionally these symptoms have been underreported and undertreated in mm -hmm. oncology. Mm -hmm. So having a system in place where we can do that is going to get resolution of those challenges. Got it. Got it. And you don't want to reveal yet which ones uh, most from? Well, so I can reveal some findings we have. Okay. So we're about to publish in the Journal of Clinical Oncology. Okay. That, that's, uh, that's a major it's a, journal. Yeah, yeah, it's an impact, I think, 44. Yeah, so, yeah, so it's, it's a, very impressive. Yeah, mm -hmm. so we're very pleased. Uh, it, the article's in press, and what we're showing is that patients that engage in the system, relative that those do, do not, so it's almost like a case control study, have less likelihood of, ending up in an emergency room visit mm. or an unplanned hospitalization. And those are two big challenges, which I didn't mention earlier. Part of the problem we have with cancer survivors is that a lot of them, the symptoms get so decompensated that they end up at an emergency room. And as you know, that's not good care for them. Uh, and the same thing with hospitalizations. Mm -hmm. So we're getting signals that engaging in the system has an impact on these very hard clinical outcomes. So we're very pleased to see that. Mm -hmm. Now we're conducting the analysis looking at, I think what you were getting at, the relative contributions of depression, right. is right. it the fatigue? Mm -hmm. What is it that's getting mm -hmm. these patients into the emergency room? Uh, and what I find fascinating is that now you've been working on this tool for some time and, and you launched it just before COVID. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and so tell me about the impact of COVID yeah. on your ability to launch this tool, was it fortuitous? Did it end up playing to your advantage? And, 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 and how has that impacted data collection and, and everything else and analysis? It's a bit of a silver lining <laughs> if, you, if you think about it, because we as a society were forced, even if you were not a high user of technology, you mm -hmm. had no other choice mm -hmm. but to so use technology, do your health. COVID screening right. before mm -hmm. you came in for a visit. Right. So, so I would say that it helped. Uh, it helped us promote the the concept and the culture of remote monitoring mm -hmm. to help optimize your clinical encounter uh, that, 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 that's great so how do you envision continuing to refine this particular tool and to make it even more applicable sure dean ford so the next step here so we're we're moving more towards um so let me just talk about a little bit about research embedded in that. So pragmatic mm -hmm. trials 
are becoming more and more popular within the behavioral sciences and behavioral medicine, meaning that rather than having a very controlled RCT within our lab, mm -hmm. we want to move those so trials. randomized clinical trial to the controlled clinic, trial. Yeah. To the clinic yeah. where, where it's more relevant. And for me, that's very satisfying because of seeing all this work from decades that we've done in very controlled environments taken to the clinic. So the idea is that we're going to be able to do risk stratification for our patients, mm -hmm. start looking at patterns mm -hmm. of patterns of depression, patterns of fatigue, and based on Got that, it. start releasing technology-based modules and wow. interventions to help these patients. Wow. So one example that goes back to culture is for fatigue, the recommendation is physical activity. Right. But right. many people say, oh, no, I'm too fatigued to exercise or yeah. I've had cancer. I shouldn't yeah. be active. Yeah. Yeah. So we yeah. want to address and that. That's also. when you need to be active. Exactly. exactly. That's a paradigm shift. Yeah. And that's fantastic. And is there going to be some way to, of nudging the yeah. person and say, get off the chair. Yeah, yeah. Get off, uh, get off in front of the television. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then a very important part mm -hmm. is the provider uh, mm -hmm. facing part of this mm -hmm. because we also have to work with providers and make sure that they're promoting this because, you know, patients sure. listen to their doctors. So if the doctor says this is good for you, they're going to do it. So you must feel really good that uh, your work, this particular work was uh, it caught the attention of the White House. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. And the best part of that is that it was a trainee of mine, Patricia wow. Moreno, who's faculty here. Wow. Uh -huh. I recruited mm -hmm. her from Northwestern mm -hmm. to come here to Miami. So Patricia was recognized by Jill Biden mm -hmm. uh, for her efforts in working with the Latino community in mm -hmm. cancer mm -hmm. and particularly focusing on the unmet needs of the cancer community, mm -hmm. which in some ways also has promoted this mm -hmm. cohort study that we're doing right now because mm -hmm. it just highlighted the fact that this community remains underserved and understudied. Mm -hmm. So it made it to the White House. I can't tell you exactly how, but they reached out to us. We were mm -hmm. at a conference in San Antonio, and Jill Biden was planning a visit to the Mace Cancer Center, and they specifically selected Dr. Moreno uh, to meet with her. And it, it just you could imagine a trainee of mine. It just made right. me so proud. Uh, it must be quite gratifying yeah. to know that your work, the people you've trained, yeah. have reached the highest level yeah. um, of uh, the U.S. government and, and as something that ultimately will um, hopefully impact policy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is great. So, Dr. Panetto, it's just been wonderful talking to you and learning about your pioneering work uh, in cancer survivorship uh, uh, thank you for the innovative approaches that uh, you have brought uh, to the study. And, and, and I'm just thrilled to imagine what's going to happen with the data that you're generating. So. Well, thank you so much. We wouldn't be able to do this work without your support and the amazing colleagues we have here. Um, so thank you. Definitely look forward to learning more about uh, your findings and then to watching the publications go out. And more importantly, see your work translated into policy yeah. to impact the quality of life for not just Latinx uh, patients, but all everyone all together, because this is quite significant. Absolutely. Dr. Pineda, thank you so much once again for joining us this morning. And for all of our listeners, this is Henri Ford for Inside Your Miami Medicine. Look forward to joining you again at another time. Thank you.